All right, what's up? So today we got Peter Keller in studio, founder of uh, Fringe Sport, huh? That's me. Yeah, so uh, Peter Keller is the founder and CEO of Fringe Sport, one of the largest retailers of home workout equipment, as you can see over here. Um, he is quoted as saying, our business was built on content and copy, which is why I want to speak with him today. And uh, Fringe Sport specializes in selling equipment for home gyms. They were already a big company, and you've probably seen their stuff all around, those Fringe Sport bumper plates and stuff. Heck yeah. But after the pandemic hit, uh, Peter said he hadn't seen demand for workout equipment like this in his all 20 years in the industry. Is that right? That's right, man. It was like a monster. Oh, man. So... Um, Let's go into it right away. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm not that strong. <laughs> well, thank you for being here, man. Hey, it's my pleasure. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, so selling gym equipment. Um, what are people ordering? Are they ordering like one dumbbell or like what are people ordering? <laughs> well, they're ordering garage gyms. And one of the things that we talk about a lot at Fringe is garage gym revolution, GGR. <laughs> and what happened with the pandemic is the garage gym revolution went from this niche thing. Like you had this like hardcore dude who was, you know, making a gym in his garage and he was kind of a weirdo to like jumping the chasm, the Jeffrey Moore like chasm thing and starting to become way more mainstream. So it wasn't just this hardcore dude. It was like normal people who are decluttering their garages and then outfitting them with a squat rack, barbell, bumper plates, all that stuff. And this was a trend before the pandemic too. In like a garage gym, it didn't seem like super common at first. Yeah, absolutely. So before the pandemic, I was talking about it. There were a few other like weirdos online, a few companies focusing on it as well. But now like mid to late to post pandemic, like it is a full blown thing. You know, Forbes is writing about it. And, you know, when I walk through my neighborhood pre pandemic, I would see a few garage gyms here and there. But now I'm, you know, I live in a suburb of Austin. I see garage gyms freaking every fifth, sixth, seventh garage. So like it's here. Garage gym revolution is here to stay. I mean, I feel like you almost now have to kind of assume that you'll be maybe at some point locked down and kind of like have to do a garage gym. Yeah. So one of the things that we saw during the pandemic is there was a lot of lack of certainty. You know, gyms were shutting down. You know, sometimes even parks were shutting down, which is crazy. Like you can't even go out there and run. Mm. But if you have your gym in your garage, which by the way, we say garage gym, but it could be apartment gym. It could be like the trunk of your car. It could be your closet, could be anywhere. But if you have that, mm. then you can take your fitness and your health into your own hands. So I think that that's part of the thing is the certainty. No matter what, I control these like four walls of my house, my apartment, my home, and I can work out there. All right, so let's jump straight to like the kind of the pandemic stuff because that's the most interesting. <laughs> like you were already a pretty big name in the fitness world already, like fringe sport, like you see it on TV shows and like I know like on <laughs> Ellen and stuff like that, you see all, your name everywhere. But um, like how much did sales go up? I don't need a number or anything, but it was like the 3X your company or? Like we're, we're talking like 300% across the industry. Oh my God. And you know, I'm kind of friends or, or frenemies or whatever with a few other people who are competitors of mine. And we all saw like similar, crazy, insane growth. And like you had mentioned earlier uh, in this podcast, I've been in e-commerce for 20 years and I have never seen demand like this. Like I personified it or animalized it in my mind <laughs> as like a dragon that was just trying to eat dumbbells and kettlebells. <laughs> and if you could get dumbbells and kettlebells to feed it, it would just eat and then be hungry for more and more and more. Like it was insane. 
So obviously costs went up. Everyone knows like costs, especially for, like for shipping, for uh, raw materials, the whole supply chain was like down, needed to start up. Like, no one predicted it would go this high for these types of things. Um, how much did a dumbbell cost in like 2008? So like totally pre-pandemic to start 2018 versus like 2020. Yeah. So there's a few things going on here and I don't know how much do you get into this? I am really a big believer that inflation is here and it's real and it's being underreported. Mm. So let me just tell you what I'm seeing from like my side of the industry. So we're making dumbbells, weight plates, squat racks. So iron ore or like raw iron is a component of a lot because that goes into steel. It goes into an iron plate, an iron dumbbell, an iron whatever. Iron ore like three or four X from, I think like it's like 85 bucks a ton or something like that to, you know, well over, you know, the high reaches of the like $200 a ton. So, you know, pretty crazy there. And then the other issue that happened during the pandemic is that everyone thought, Hey, this is just going to be a very short period of time. Like there's some panic buying right now, but then it's going to go away. And that panic buying basically sustained from like March of 2020 until basically like March of 2021. Like it was a whole 12 months of just absolutely insane panic buying. So what happened is the panic buying at the very start caused basically everyone to go out of stock. So again, back to like media reports, you were seeing these media reports of like the great kettlebell shortage of 2020, <laughs> you know, want a dumbbell, you know, you can't buy one. And then also on Facebook marketplace and kind of these secondary markets, we would be selling a dumbbell for like a buck 50 a pound, maybe for these rubber coated hex dumbbells that we sell. Mm -hmm. And then on marketplace, people would be selling them for like six bucks a pound. Holy crap. And some of the people that were doing that would be buying them from us at buck 50 <laughs> a pound. And then they'd be just reselling them. And so that was, you know, something that we had to look at as a company. But so raw materials have gone up just massively. And then shipping containers have gone up massively as well. It used to cost me $2,500 to land a shipping container. When you say Austin. shipping container, you're talking about like a truck size thing? Yeah, a, tr a truckload size of product. An 18-wheeler with that drags behind it. Exactly. So, and by the way, almost everything that's imported comes on a shipping container. So if you just kind of look around your home and you're like, hey, what was made in the USA versus imported? If it was imported from anywhere outside the US, it almost certainly came on a shipping container. And shipping containers went from about $2,500 to get here to most recently I'm paying like $17,000 to get here. So it's some pretty crazy, crazy inflation. So uh, on that note, it's it's hard to know because everyone says like oh it's transitory which basically means like inflation <laughs> is like just the supply chain kinks and it takes a long time for the system to go up so obviously no one thought shipping would be a big thing and then all of a sudden it was like the hugest thing in the world so they shut everything down they took all these ships off the market and now they're slowly getting back and that's a big process to start yeah so it probably takes like a year for it to really kick up or, or possibly even several years oh okay so, so from your point of view, it's mostly like an inflation thing, not just like this temporary supply problem. I think that there is inflation that's here to stay. I personally believe on the shipping side of it, that prices will eventually go back down, but never reach the lows of say 2019. Mm. I have been in e-commerce for 20 years now, and I've been moving containers around the world for 17 years maybe mm -hmm. and i've seen prices fluctuate up and down but they've never just gone this crazy high 
And so I do think that they're going to eventually come back down to some level, but I don't think that they're going to like a word for it, like the wavy elevator or something like that, <laughs> where it's like, it's like an elevator going up or escalator, but it's, it's always kind of like, yeah, a little like this, but always on the uptrend overall. Yeah. So, so you can talk about like stochastic movements, like stochastic movements are like wavy, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, but generally if you were to lay a trend line, they're going in a specific direction. So I think the trend line on shipping is stochastic, but the trend line is up. So much like there's like a consumer price index, what was the dumbbell price index? So I love that. 2018. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking before pandemic, mm -hmm. not even like at the end of the year or anything. This is a thing. How much did a 25, how much did this dumbbell cost? Um, I would probably be selling that pre-pandemic for like 25 bucks to somebody. So basically a buck a pound. Oh, really? Pre-pandemic. It's because it's a rubber coated hex dumbbell. So it's not kind of like the lowest end. Uh-huh. But now, post-pandemic, we're at like $2 to two fifty a pound. So you're talking like 50, 60 bucks kind of range? Uh, for the pair, you mean? Yeah. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry, for the single. Yeah, 50 to 60 bucks. For a single one? For a single one. Oh, I forgot that it comes in pairs. Yeah. Oh, so you're talking about 100 bucks for 25-pound weights? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think I bought these little 20-pound weights like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that. And I remember paying like nothing for them. Like yeah. 50 cents a pound or something. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So I recently bought a 35 pound dumbbell from Target and I mm -hmm. paid $85 for it. <laughs> there you go. And I was just like, I can't find it anywhere cheaper. So yeah. I guess this is just what I pay now. I mean, this, this like stuff I'm lifting is real. cash. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So overall, that's a, the thing is the demand is so strong. I'm assuming you just raise prices and like people kind of still pay. We, we did raise prices into the face of demand. And, you know, I almost, man, that was, we always try to keep our prices as low and fair and appropriate for our customers, but it was just such a crazy time with costs rising so fast and such uncertainty. Like, I don't know if you remember well the early stages of the pandemic, but I had 25 employees and I'm like, are we even going to be allowed to work? Mm -hmm. And so what do I do for these 25 employees that depend on me to, or any you know, fringe to provide, you know, wage to keep the lights on and keep a roof over their head. And, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. So, so yeah, we did raise prices in the face of the pandemic. It was really, I think you can tell, tell like, I'm not, not, not a fan of it, but you know, it, it kept us going and you know, we are where we are. That's awesome. Well, congrats. I always like it when like, uh, I don't like it, but it's kind of neat when someone like something big like this happens mm -hmm. and then like some people like succeed. <laughs> I know there's also some losers on it, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of cool. Um, let's talk about email marketing. It sounds like right now, so long as you have a dumbbell in stock, you could probably sell it. Oh yeah. At the moment. <laughs> but you've also been in business for what? 17 years? 11 years with fringe. 11 years, but then like 17, 20 years in the fitness industry. Ah, uh, well, so actually I was in e-commerce, but appliances, so uh, ice makers, okay. air conditioners, stuff like that before fringe. Oh, no. Okay. So you, damn, you've been in eco, you've been shipping stuff around for a long time. Now. Yeah. Okay. So is, let me get, is email the big daddy of your channels? Like Absolutely. for marketing? Absolutely. I freaking love email. Are you talking about like 30% of your, like, or 50% or 80%? Like what? Uh, well, it's, it's less than that. So we're talking more like 30% of revenue, something uh -huh. like that. But I love email. So you can send an email out and generate sales absolutely okay every single email we send out you know generate sales wow okay so email is good <laughs> uh how do you how do you approach it like um well if i get a fringe sport email and i've been on the list for three months mm -hmm. is it like buy dumbbells or what does it say so right now it's more promotional focused than i would like our list to be and then it was 
than the list was pre-pandemic. But one of the things that you mentioned right now is the market is still up and people are still opening our emails. They're still clicking, they're still buying. So the emails are relevant to our list. And so we're a little bit more promotional now than we used to be. But pre-pandemic, we were very, very content focused. And so what we did is we had the schedule of, you know, we've got a few buyer personas of people who like to shop for us. And then we do some brainstorming. What would I, if I were this person, what would I love to receive in my email? Because I'm sure that you're on email lists that you love to be on. Like, can you shout some out? What are, what are a few ones that you just love the emails? The hustle is, is of course one, what I, I helped kind of write. <laughs> um, I love a bunch. There's a, oh, Bology, Bology mm-hmm. S. It, basically the ones that send me good information. Yeah. And it's not trying to like, buy, buy, buy. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, check out all this cool stuff. Those are the yeah. ones I really love. How about Chubby's? You on Chubby's email list? I, oh, damn, I wasn't wearing my Chubby's right now, but I do have them on their email list and I collect their emails because they're so good. I freaking love Chubby's list. I'm also on the hustle list. There's another list called the morning chalk up that's within our space. And that's a really great list. So one of the things I try to talk to, because now I've got employees who are managing most of our email and I try to talk to them and I say, Hey, these are the email lists that I love. They don't have to be the same ones that you love, but sign up for some email lists and then start delving into yourself and figuring out why do I love to read these emails? Mm. Then look at our buyer personas and try to put yourself in their shoes and try to make our list similar to that to where it's a joy for them to receive it in their email and then open it up and read it. So to mention a few other things that we did pre-pandemic when we were much more content focused than we are now is we would do a workout of the week and we would invite like a bunch of our different, so we would announce it on email, but then follow it on social so that people could read it in their email. And it was a Saturday morning thing. And so it's like, Hey, do this workout sometime over the weekend and then post on our socials, your time or your weight lifted or how you did and trying to bring the community in as far as that goes. Uh, another two email content pieces that were really popular for us is we would have our LCG LCG is local community gym. Hmm. It's like your little, uh, I know you said that you love squatch. here in Austin, Texas. So that's an LCG, a local community gym. Uh So we would focus on one local community gym per week and we would do an interview with the owner. Why is your gym different? Because for example, I go to Atomic Athlete to train despite the fact that I own a gym at Fringe (laughs) and I own a awesome garage gym. There's a reason that I go to Atomic. It's different than other gyms here in Austin. But I know some people love Central Athlete, some people love CrossFit Central. Some people love CrossFit Cedar Park. There's Outsiders here on the east side. That's amazing. Um, Squatch is awesome as well. So there's some reason that those gyms are awesome. And we try to talk with their owners and figure out what that reason is and then share it with our community, mm. which is all throughout the U.S. And so we're, we're focusing on gyms all throughout the U.S. Mm. So that was one piece of content that did really well for us. Another piece of content is we would do Garage Gym of the Week. And so we would pull mm. our clients and say, hey, who wants to show you know the world or the Fringe Sport email list your garage gym and talk about it a little bit? And one of the things that we got feedback from our clients that they really loved is that we would feature people who didn't only have Fringe Sport gear. Because the reality is many people, I mean, we got a lot of awesome people that only outfit with Fringe. And if that's you out there listening, yeah, you're my type of person. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we're good for whatever, like who has, you know, whatever gear you have, that's helping you 
get to a goal. And so we would talk with them, interview them about what's their goal, why do they have the equipment that they have, is there a particular famous, sorry, famous, favorite piece of equipment. So for example, we've got a sandbag sitting here. A sandbag is one of my favorite pieces of equipment, and I love to talk to people about why I love sandbag training and why they might move it into their regimen. But it's not for everybody. Hmm. Do you ever, uh, <laughs> crazy idea, third world gym <laughs> so you, you go to like a village and they have like, like, instead of like a 50 pound bag of sand, they're just like, oh, we have actual bags of sand laying <laughs> around that I, I always love those, those videos of like a uh, village people, or there's like a bodybuilder that comes from like a small village yeah. in Russia or something like that. And he's using like, you know, milk jugs and like weird stuff like that. <laughs> well, I imagine it captivates people the same as, uh, home offices. Mm-hmm. Home offices, I remember like when the, uh, especially when the pandemic hit, everyone's like home office stuff. Is, is it similar to that? Yeah, for sure. And actually, so I want to call something out there. I had mentioned before that garage gyms started mainstreaming in the pandemic. One of the really interesting things that we saw is pre-pandemic, most garage gyms were what I called pain caves. So pain, you know, it hurts, <laughs> like you go there and you suffer, you sweat and you come out stronger. During the pandemic, we saw this rise of what I call man cave garage gyms or like rate my setup garage gyms because pre-pandemic I had never seen anybody go on Instagram take a picture of their garage gym and be like rate my setup and to me that was it was so crazy that it caused me like a excuse me like a crisis of confidence at that point or mm. I was like what are we doing man if somebody's just outfitting their garage gym and they just want people on Instagram to like you know, do it for the likes. I was like, Oh boy, I'm not in love with this, but I eventually came around. I'm like, Hey, I, I get it. You can build an amazing body in a pain cave or a man cave. So now my whole thing is use it. As long as you use it, I'm cool. So, so previously like, uh, so we do email stuff to like do promotions and everything. And like, what, ha what is the biggest month or season that you see? I'm assuming for gyms, I know it's like January, right? Everyone's got the new pod. You got the, the new year's resolution. I'm going to lose weight. Is there like a specific season? Is this, this is a seasonal business, I'm assuming? It is seasonal. And what we see actually is Black Friday, Cyber Monday is just massive in this space. Mm. Like Black Friday through Cyber Monday is worth about a month's worth of sales for me. And I think just kind of in space. Because I think that people have got this idea of January coming. And they're to some extent buying for themselves. They're to some extent buying for gifts. And it's just kind of a buying season. Mm -hmm. So that's a really big high season. Then, of course, you've got January, especially early January, where you've got the New Year's resolution crowd. Then you've got late spring as another busy season because people are starting to think about summer and they want to get that summer body. Mm -hmm. And so they start doing that. And then in the summer, we actually get a little lull. Like January, no, sorry, January, what am I saying? july there's a little bit of a lull and i think people are generally speaking like getting outdoors and doing stuff and thinking less about their garage gym mm. then august starts to come around people start thinking about school again i know like teenagers are you know training for football and stuff like that and i think adults who have kids are like hey my kids are going back to school i'm going to have a little more free time maybe i'll outfit the gym huh. so whenever okay so let's say it's one of those lull months right mm -hmm. and you've got you're fired up the old email marketing stuff and you're just like what do we sell? Like, what, how do you, how do you approach that? Cause sometimes like, for example, mm -hmm. black Friday, cyber Monday, we know what to do. It's a discount time, right? You offer a big ass discount. People buy, 
Uh, it's pretty simple. But then if it's like a random August, like right now or something, you're just like, how do you get people to buy? It's not the end of Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4. There's no real reason right now. How do you, like, what do you do to drum up sales in those weird months or do you even try? Uh, well, yeah, we definitely try. <laughs> Sometimes more successfully than others. Yeah. But what we try to do is we try to think about, hey, what are some trends that we can kind of piggyback on or what's going on? Mm. You know, weirdly, Texas does a, I don't know, weirdly, but Texas does a tax-free weekend in preparation of the kids going back to school. Mm -hmm. And we always get hit up by local customers because we have a retail shop here in Austin. We always get hit up by local customers saying, hey, are you guys doing tax-free weekend? Now, the reality is tax-free we weekend is for like shirts and shoes, not barbells, but we usually run a sale piggybacking on that where we eat the tax. So we basically mm. like make it a tax-free weekend for local. Hmm. But then beyond that, we try to key into various different things. Uh, for example, there's a workout, this is not late summer, but early summer for Memorial Day. It's called Memorial Day Murph, and it honors a Navy SEAL who was killed in Af Afghanistan. The workout for Memorial Day Murph requires you to wear a weight vest, 14 pound for females, 20 pound for males. And so we always key into that and say, hey, this is a great way to test your fitness and to kind of honor the fallen and, and, and like think a little bit about what your freedoms cost. And here's a weight vest that we sell that you can use with that. Um, that can be a little, you know, we're trying not to you know, be like, hey, this dude died, you know, buy a weight vest. <laughs> so, so you have to handle that a little bit delicately but i think that we do and we we honor somebody's memory while at the same time you know selling some product i like that piggybacking <laughs> on other trends that's a i actually never really thought of that that's a oh well, thank you that's yeah. a little idea i wrote down over here um so let's get on to content marketing so you were quoted as saying like our business was built on content and copy and you said you i don't know if you never have done paid advertising but it sounds like it's not most of your business we've done it now and again uh, throughout the history of Fringe, but right now we do no PPC, like zero dollars. You probably just don't need to right now, especially too, right? I mean, right now we don't need to. The dynamics are changing a little bit, and so definitely de supply is equilibrating, coming equal basically yeah. to demand, and so things are changing rapidly. I will say that almost all of my friends, actually, I was telling you this when we were by a pool last week, <laughs> and there was another e-commerce guy that was with us, and he was like, I told you that some of my friends think I'm stupid and he immediately is like, yes, you need to be doing paid spend. So I hear that from a lot of people that said, again, just like I told you, my business was built on content and copy. Uh, and, and to talk a little bit more about that, I love to read and I've always loved to write back in college. I took way more writing component courses than I was required to. And all of my friends who were taking the writing component courses were complaining about them. Oh, I got to write all these papers. And I was like, I love writing these papers. <laughs> like I get great grades on these papers and it's like, you know, actually enjoyable to me. So I've always loved writing and reading. And so when I started Fringe, I actually, <laughs> I made a bunch of mistakes. Like we had crappy photos. We had you know, maybe not doing PPC was a mistake, I don't know, crappy social, all that stuff. But from the beginning, I always focused on product pages and emails. And I was writing all of them. Uh, so I've been doing Fringe for 11 years. I was writing every email and every product page for the first six or seven years of our existence. And I don't do that anymore but I miss it badly, honestly. Mm. I love 
writing that stuff. And I'm looking behind you and I see like breakthrough advertising on your <laughs> bookshelf. And I, I'm also a customer of, of copywriting course. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo. Copywriting <laughs> course. And I think you were the one who recommended, uh, in copywriting course, the boron letters. Do you recommend that? Yep. All time. So, so I read the boron letters, pretty sure, uh, you had recommended it to me and that's where I read it. And then do you also recommend Ogilvy on advertising? Th those are my top three Ogil Halbert letters, Ogilvy on advertising, and then uh, Joseph Sugarman's book, Advertising mm -hmm. Secrets of the Written Word. Those okay. Those my top three. I'm gonna check out Secrets of the Written Word because I've yeah. not read that one. But, so I always loved to write and I was always writing all this stuff for Fringe. And then whenever I heard about Copywriting Course or met you, I immediately bought the Boron Letters and the other two that I had mentioned, mm -hmm. and they changed my approach to content and copy. And I started to get more, I started to understand more how to write hooky and how to write better CTAs that are also really interesting to read. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I get is when I used to send out emails, people would reply back to me and sometimes they would, like a lot of time people would say, I didn't buy anything, but I loved reading this email. Nice. So I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> why didn't you buy something? But, but at the same time, like I loved hearing that from them. And so that just caused me to double down because I was getting, I already loved to write. Uh, we were growing in revenue and profitability and all the stuff like that. And I was getting, people would just talk to me and be like, hey, I love your emails. And so that was something that we just flowed through Fringe. And now that's something that I try to teach my content people is one of the big things that I try to teach them, the difference between content, which I view as more top of funnel and more education, education and awareness related, and then copy, which I view as more mid funnel to bottom funnel, which is more in my mind, conversion related. Mm -hmm. And then at what point do you write content? And at what point do you write copy? And how do you kind of cross over between the two? 70, 30. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I always have an answer for that. 70% content, 30% sales. I love it. And remember, so so obviously with AppSumo, like you remember the AppSumo emails, we used to get that exact same type of thing mm -hmm. where it was just like, people are like, I don't need this right now, but this was really fun to read. Like, yeah. thanks for this. And then people would be like, why am I reading your emails? You're literally trying to sell me something every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, well, it's because I give you 70% actual good content. And then about 30% 30 30 of the email, I'm trying to sell you something mm -hmm. or less. Or you could, you can make that ninety percent content, ten percent sales, and in that is, that was my ratio. That if you stay about thirty percent sales or less on every on most of your emails, you'll not piss people off enough to like get them to leave. Mm. So if they're still learning something, but they're just like, oh, there's a little bit of sales, um, and usually you can make the sales fun too. Yeah, you don't have to just be like buy, buy, buy. There's other ways you can sell people on stuff. Yeah, you can show them why it's good for them, why it helps. I totally so agree. People like hearing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and to delve a little bit more into that. So we sell about 15 barbells on Fringe Sport. And if you're not really into this. So one thing I tell people at parties, if, if they ask me just a one line, what do you do? I tell them, I sell barbells to people who care a little bit too much about barbells. Okay. And so either you get it or you don't. It's kind of like... <clears throat> I used to be a top status on United Airlines. And when you hang out with other of these people who are, you know, these road warriors who are top status, almost everyone has a Toomey bag. And a Toomey bag costs 10 times as much 
as a almost equivalent bag that you could buy at Costco. Costco had like a Victoria Knox, like similar model. Mm. And the people who are the road warriors, that slight subtle difference or the way the Tumi was better was worth to them 10X because they were so into it. Mm. So to take this back to barbells, anybody can walk into Dick's Sporting Goods or a local plate against sports or something like that and buy a barbell that costs 50% to 75% of my cheapest barbell on fringe sport. It's going to weigh the same amount. And then generally speaking, it's going to lift the same amount of weight. Mm -hmm. But for our customers, there's a reason to spend more like at minimum kind of twice as much more to maybe five, six, seven times as much more. And so when it comes back to like writing the copy, it's not only trying to get somebody to want to buy a better barbell, it's also actually to discourage people for whom this barbell is not for you. Hmm. So for example, a powerlifting bar, a dedicated powerlifting bar has this really aggressive cross hatching or knurling on the shaft. So if you are a powerlifter, it's like, I want to lift as much weight as possible in squat, deadlift and bench. And that's all I care about. You want that super aggressive neural, but if you're almost any other type of lifter, your the neural is going to just chew up your hands. Like it's going to create these big calluses. It's going to tear these calluses on your hand and it's a terrible bar for you. So one of the things that we try to say is like, don't buy this barbell unless bah, bah, bah. and that we're providing education, but also, you know, back to, you know, the make it fun to read like we can provide humor like we can make fun of power lifters in a loving way yeah i'll always tell people like don't call it content marketing call, call it education marketing i love that just educate them yeah. like you don't have to sell anything if you educate them enough they will internally want that product absolutely yeah so that's a, that's a great thing so instead of being like buy this barbell you show them like you talk about the gnarling on the, yeah. the thing and then they're like oh that's me or not me yeah okay. that that's awesome um what is this true with all the, the marketers you, or sort of the founders you've seen? The companies that are really good at content marketing generally have a founder that was interested in content. I've never, I dare say never have seen it the other way around. So you think about someone like HubSpot or something, the founder Darmesh is like really good at writing videos and uh, content and, and giving presentations or like Steve Jobs or something was just a good as like presenting, like th those types of founders are good at content. Um, have you seen it like that or have you ever seen like the founder like never puts out content but is like somehow really good at hiring people? I agree 100% and I would actually even go slightly further to the founder is typically a fan of a specific channel or type of content. So to bring this back, mm, yes. every time I run it, I'm friends with Eric Banholtz from Beard Brand, mm -hmm. which love Eric, love Beard huge Brand. Huge YouTube channel, million. Uh, yes, yeah. huge YouTube channel. Every time I see Eric, he's like, Pete, you are missing the boat on YouTube because our YouTube channel for friend is, is pretty small and he's 100% right. But Eric is really into that YouTube channel. I have not ever really been into that YouTube channel. And so fringe I've like handicapped fringe on that. So fringe is not really done well on that channel. But I think that if I were a more natural, like YouTube type, YouTube type of person, then we would probably do better. So I totally agree with what you said. About That's a that. great point. Like sometimes the founders are really good at writing. So their <laughs> writing stuff tends to be good. And then when they hire writers, 
they tend to hire writers that are kind of like them and they train them. So those writers are good at writing. Okay. Very interesting. Also, Eric Banholtz is like a really, really good looking man. And so, you know, for us, uh, or I'll speak for myself, six is over here. We can't compete with you, Eric. Jesus. He's a tall drink of water. Yeah, exactly. Even, even on YouTube, you could tell that he's huge. <laughs> like he's so big. Um, so social media then, so you're saying YouTube is not your strongest point cause that wasn't like your thing. So what, what social media channel is or what marketing man. Is? So right now, Instagram is decent for fringe, but we're also, so one of the things, I don't know if you heard of this before, but the, well, I guess it keys into what we were just mentioning earlier. I'm not very social. And that has kind of bled into the company a little bit because mm -hmm. I'm just not enthusiastic about Instagram or even Facebook or YouTube. And so our biggest like social channel is email right now, basically like that is how we, I know email is not a social channel, quote unquote, mm -hmm. but like, that's how we communicate most effectively with our customers. I'm trying to get better because I see you know, trying to, to push fringe to get better because I, I see so many brands that are doing well on a YouTube, uh, B Instagram, and then see like TikTok is like this dark horse coming out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, we, when somebody features our barbell or usually it's some bumper plates on TikTok, like we see this and it goes viral. Of course we see this massive spike of traffic and it actually converts, I mean, low mm. conversion rate, but it does convert. Whereas previously, uh, sometimes Reddit, for example, can send massive spikes of traffic that don't convert. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's pretty crazy. So Instagram's our best quote unquote social channel right now, but even then, it's a little bit handicapped because it's not something that I'm personally really interested in, and and I think that we're struggling on that channel as a company as a result. Huh. So so then what about um so SEO? <laughs> okay, so I, I did a quick uh, maybe we'll put up a screenshot or something like that. I did a quick little ahrefs.com uh look at fringe sport. So you'll have a lot of SEO traffic. You'll get a ton. So search engine optimization, of course. Um, is this something you focus on? And I'll, I'll tell you the thing I found is uh, Sujin Patel, I don't know, another entrepreneur guy who runs a ton of software companies. He was talking about SEO. He's known for SEO. He's like, I really don't care about like someone searching for the term like follow-up email and we're number one like that's cool but most of those people are just kind of like what is a follow-up they're not really ready to buy whereas if they type in like Mailshake, one of his companies follow-up email he's like that's what we want the branded mm -hmm. search so on yours you have a lot of traffic but the granddaddy biggest 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 keyword by like night like a mile like 90 percent or something is fringe sport so people, I was almost jealous because like, I think I get more SEO traffic than you overall for all the different keywords, but you murder on just people looking up your brand name, which is the best because they're just like, they're like, I don't care what else is out there. I'm going to fringe sport. Is that, I mean, is that, is that accurate from my spying on your, uh, yeah, yeah that's totally accurate. <laughs> and I think that a lot of people, cause if you look at it, of course, fringe sport, fringe sports, and then very various other derivations. Like there's a lot of fringe fitness. There's like fringe bumper plate. But Google all like knows that. that's all the same thing. Right. Yeah. So I actually think part of it is because we're not doing paid spend like other people are. And so maybe they're having trouble finding us in like, you know, the top of the search or something like that. Or maybe we just have a name that people somewhat forget you know, what exactly the name is. So they just like go to Google and be like, Hey, I'll type in the branded keyword to get that. I don't know the, the reason. So I remember like, even before I met you, I would see fringe sport, like on bumper plates. Mm -hmm. Right. And I would say fringe sport. And then I'd be like, Oh, if I want gym equipment, I guess I type in the name of a brand. I'm not trying to think like, 
what brand or kettlebells. I don't even know. Yeah. And so I just type in like fringe sport. So I, I assume that's part of it. Just your branding is everywhere. Yeah. But uh, we actually don't do any SEO. We don't have any internal focus on our own branded keyword search. So we're not trying to like manipulate the results or do anything like that. I just view that as a some sort of like measure of brand strength, mm-hmm. I guess. Like the better that we're doing just kind of generically as a brand, the more our branded uh, keyword is going to be searched for in Google. Well, Fringe Sport, the correct spelling, had 10,000 a month volume. And usually on Ahrefs, so multiply that by three is my rough metric. So those 30,000 plus all the long tail ones. Mm-hmm. So I'm suspecting there's like 50,000 plus people searching you a month just for fringe sport yeah, or some derivation of like fringes sport or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. That's uh well, congrats. That's, that's awesome. You're not even trying, but you're killing it. Yeah. I hate <laughs> well, you. Well, we do, we do try at SEO. We just don't try it necessarily the branded SEO, let's say. Mm. And what we try at at SEO is we try to produce a lot of, a lot of content that is really helping people. And we've even kind of pivoted slightly as the garage gym revolution, GGR, has mainstreamed because one of the things that we found is that our previous customers who were building garage gyms, what they were doing is they were high school or collegiate athletes who post-collegiate or post-high school or whatever join a gym. And in many cases, it's what we call LCG, local community gym, Mm -hmm. like Squatch or something like that. And then they decide to build a gym in their garage, which they may keep their gym membership or they may not, but they're, they're having this, they've been steeped in athletics and in gym culture before they build a gym. However, now what we're seeing with this mainstreaming crossing the chasm of the garage gym revolution is that there are a lot of people who aren't steeped in that athletic background and or that gym background who then decide to build a gym and then they don't know what to do with it. And so we're producing a lot of educational content around things, you know, how do you use a gym to lose weight? How do you use a gym to get stronger? And then even like micro things like, and this is maybe sounds silly to you, but like, how do you load plates on a barbell? Because one of the things that a hardcore gym rat or meathead would know is that you load the heavier weights to the inside. And if the weights are double side, sorry, if the weights have one side that's blank and one side that's branded, the branded side faces away from you being in the middle of the barbell. Hmm. That's just like a normal gym thing. So for example, if I was at the gym and I saw someone loading plates and they put the lighter plates on the inside and the heavier plates on the outside, I'll be like, what the hell is that person doing? But, <laughs> but nobody ever teaches people like that right? Nobody says do that. They just see what people are doing at the gym and then they emulate. So if you're building a gym in your garage and you're not getting this like learning by osmosis, like you just don't know this stuff. Hmm. And so we try to help educate people on that. Nice. So uh, first of all, I'm get. I need a little bit of pump up here. Yeah, yeah go for it. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I was just like, I got, I got, I got the, the guns out. I need to, need to get, <laughs> get them pumped up. Uh, okay. So next question so training your writers and marketing people on all this. So how do you go about training your marketing people to be good writers, good content? So you're already good at making content. Like what do you do to train them? I'm just curious. Yeah, absolutely. So I was listening to one of your YouTube videos over the weekend, which I, I love by the way. Oh, thanks. And one of the things I'm trying to remember which one I listened to, but it was kind of like 10 signs that you're, you're not going to be a good copywriter or maybe 10 things you need to be a copywriter or something like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you mentioned is 
<clears throat> have you ever, okay, you want to be a copywriter. Have you ever written anything? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so you expound upon that and, and you're like, look, if you want to be a copywriter, cause somebody on, you know, an Instagram ad said that you can make, you know, six figures being a copywriter, but you, you just don't write things and you don't enjoy writing things. Like it's not for you. So very first I try to find writers to work for me who are passionate about writing. And, and that could be like, they have a blog, even if the blog is not well trafficked or something like that, but they have to basically do writing for fun or somehow enjoy the process. Otherwise it's just going to be a grind and it's going to be a waste of, of my time and theirs. So my most recent copywriter who's working with me, who's awesome. Shout out Katie. Hey, holla. What's up Katie? Yeah. So Katie is a journalism school grad and I freaking love journalism school grads. So I have actually a film degree, which is humorous to me, but I started out. Yeah. I don't use it at all. And I'm terrible at YouTube. So like I should be good at YouTube, right? but I have a film degree, but I started out college in J school and in journalism school, they make you write like you freaking write so many words to get out of J school. And so when she applied and I saw that she had a journalism school degree, I was like, Oh, I don't even need to check if this person has a blog or doesn't have a blog. They are just steeped in producing words. So, so that's where we try to start. Try to start with somebody who's already a writer, hopefully enjoys it, you know, has a blog. I mean, even like, look at their Instagram posts. Are they just posting like one picture of them looking amazing? And then it's like blessed in the caption <laughs> or yeah. Or are they the person that's writing a caption that is at risk of running out of the characters in, in the the Instagram. So I start there, somebody who likes to write. The next thing that I do is say, can you get someone to do something based on your writing? Mm. Cause I can help teach you to have better CTAs and you know, to write in the fringe style, which we call fringelish around the office. <laughs> there you go. So good. That's but, so good. but can you make somebody do something through your writing? And then if the answer is yes, then we can kind of move on from there. And then what I actually do now is I enroll them in copywriting course. <laughs> oh, cool. Hey, free promo. There yeah. we go. Which is just absolutely amazing, amazing training. And I love it. And we'll just review it for them. Yeah, there you yeah. go. We just review the page or the email for you. I love it. Yeah. Uh, then what I do is I buy them the boron letters first. Mm. And the reason that I buy them the boron letters first is because it's really a short book. I can't remember how many pages it is. 100? 26 chapters, each page, like, each chapter, like two pages, three pages. Yeah. yeah. So it's a really short book. And it's really great. And so I start getting them to read the Boron letters and I start getting them to take the course. And then I start talking to them about how to write for fringe, when to educate and when to do that sales pitch. And, you know, ultimately we got to make revenue to keep the lights on, keep them employed, stuff like that, but making them understand that, oh, actually I was talking with my, my, I was talking with Katie yesterday mm -hmm. and I was saying, okay, the email list is like a fishing hole and you can pull so many fish out of that fishing hole and maybe keep going back to that for the rest of your life if you don't overfish the hole but if you overfish the hole you might pull out a ton of fish on one day and you might even pull out a ton of fish the next week but then pretty soon that hole is going to be overfished and you're not going to pull anything else out anymore and so what we want to do to not overfish the hole is to provide value through education, through humor, through something. And that, you know, attracts more fish 
like the fish tell their friends <laughs> and then they come to the hole and then you can keep pulling a few fish out here and there. Damn, that's a that's a great analogy. Can you mark that, please? Yeah, that's that. Trade, trademark, that trademark. Clip. That's mine. Yeah. Don't take it. Fish, fishing hole, TM. Yeah, I've, I've never heard it described like that. That is a great analogy. Huh. By the way, one of the one of my favorite uh, things of good storytellers, like good analogies. <laughs> Someone like Elon Musk will dis- discuss like orbital physics, <laughs> but like with great analogies. That's awesome. Um, so you hire other people to do the content marketing. You're you have a film school degree yet aren't on youtube do you think okay but here's so i kind of like this to some degree you know you should probably do youtube but like anything it's not like you're just going to put up videos and like all of a sudden make a ton it's like a long-term game i mean this isn't like maybe the early days of tiktok or youtube you get on these platforms you get really popular just by the fact that you're very early but on youtube the jig's out like everyone knows everyone knows like major networks are on youtube so I kind of like that you're not just jumping on the bandwagon, but at the same time, like, that's a tough call. Like, do you do it? Do you not do it? Like, what's the upside? What's the downside? I don't know. How do you, how do you think of that? So we just don't do YouTube well. I actually, so <laughs> Eric had, rec- Eric Banholtz from Beard Brand had recommended to me one of his friends who does YouTube well. And so I actually hired him. And so we are slow rolling on YouTube, mm-hmm. but where and we are putting out several videos a week and we're kind of like getting there and we see mm-hmm. that our stats are climbing and stuff like that. Yeah. One of the things though is I don't get wildly excited about YouTube. I actually, when I told you that, you know, I built my business on content and copy, I geek out on this stuff. I love it. Like talking with you just right now, talking with you like last week when we were talking about it, talking with Katie and like teaching her this stuff. I love it. YouTube, I do feel that we that it, it is or could be a great channel for us. I do feel that we should grow it. I don't get like just giddy like talking about you it. You don't sound jazzed about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I'm excited but not not jazzed. And and one of the things actually is I'm told I I love to write, but I don't love and actually I do love to talk as well. But I've I've been worried, and I, I know this is putting the cart before the horse, but I've been worried that if we grow really successfully on YouTube, then it's going to put me as kind of an influencer. And I'd mentioned before that I'm not really very much on Instagram. I'm not really very much on Facebook. I, I love interpersonal connecting with people, and I love connecting with people through writing, but I don't love feeling like an influencer. Huh. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, so counterpoint to this. One of our buddies, uh, I don't think he cares if we mentioned him, but I won't say it, but he has a big office around here. It's a dog company. Mm-hmm. Um, he is barely on social media. Mm-hmm. doesn't do any influencing or anything, but their company has like the largest followings in like the dog space. Hmm. And so he's very good at hiring others to do it, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. So I think there is a world where you can hire, have influence and videos and stuff and you not be the star of it. Interesting. I, th- I think it's, it's possible. I've seen it happen. It's rare. Like we said, like generally the, the founder is good at whatever, but I have seen it very, very rarely in, in some people. So that's kind of neat. I have to follow up off the air. Well, so um, how about this? So you said something interesting. So content copy and the only, I guess, paid, I don't even know this is a paid channel, affiliates. Yes. You do a lot of affiliates. Can you explain like how do when you say affiliates, what do you mean? Like who's promoting this? How does yeah, it absolutely. So we do work with affiliates. Uh, affiliate marketers. And so typically the profile of an affiliate that we work with is someone who's really into the garage gym space and who genuinely loves it 
on their own. So they're already doing it. They're already doing it. And then they review products and help people build awesome garage gyms. And we work with these affiliates. And of course, the affiliate market space is that we pay them a commission. And so I do enjoy working with affiliates. Part of the reason why I enjoy working with affiliates is because it's a bunch of like-minded people. Every affiliate that we do well with genuinely cares about this stuff. Mm. They care about fitness and health and working out. They care about, you know, they may not think about it as GGR, Garage Gym Revolution, like mm. I do, but they, they really care about people working out in their garage and getting healthy and improving lives through strength. So are, are these like bloggers, YouTubers, TikTokers, like like SEO review sites like where where do you mostly review sites at this point so people that are like best dumbbell 2020 exactly okay. okay got it and I get I, I do have a little bit of a uh, quibble about it because remember earlier I had mentioned the pain cave versus man cave dichotomy mm -hmm. and I'm a little bit down on the man cave dichotomy I do find or the man cave side let's say but as long as you use it I'm like totally cool mm -hmm. so I find that there's an over intellectualizing of the barbell sometimes. You know, some, some people will be like, I want the absolute perfect barbell for me. And sometimes I wanna say, bro, a good or okay barbell is gonna be absolutely amazing for you if you just use it. Mm -hmm. Stop thinking about it, just buy a barbell, whether it be for me or for someone else, and learn how to use it. And so let me go, I'm gonna go off on a quick rant. So <clears throat> we're in the renaissance or the second golden age of the barbell right now. Mm. The first golden age of the barbell was in the mid 70s. And so you had this explosion of bodybuilding that Arnold yeah. basically <laughs> was the tip of the spear on. And so in that golden age of bodybuilding, you had a golden age of barbells. And so you saw a lot of development of barbell styles of quality of things increasing uh, quality increasing availability increasing popularity of it increasing and then in the mid to late 70s came what called what are called the selectorized machines which are uh were invented by the nautilus company and basically a selectorized machine is one of those isolation mach machines where you pull a pin put it somewhere else and then you're oops sorry about that where you're then doing bicep curls or something like that but the machine only allows you to have a very strict range of motion. That killed the first golden age of the barbell. And the reason it did so is that you actually have to learn a little bit about physical culture and kinesiology and how to move your body, how to manipulate your body with a barbell. However, if you go to a gym that has all those selectorized machines that force the patterns of your body into only strict movement patterns, you don't have to learn how to manipulate a barbell. So the learning curve is very low, but even more important to why this killed the barbell or the first golden age of the barbell is it allowed gyms to hire fewer personal trainers. Mm. Because prior to this, they'd have to hire, excuse me, have to hire personal trainers who knew very well kinesiology, how to move the body, and could relate to people and teach them how to move and utilize that barbell. After the selectorized machines became popular, they only had to hire pin setters or babysitters that just say, oh, okay, you know, last time you did curls on with the pin at 20, this time do it at 25. Mm. And so there's this whole generation or like two generations that probably ended 
around the second age, second golden age of the barbell started around 2005. And I think CrossFit really ushered that in where people basically lost the ability to know how to manipulate a barbell to achieve results. And you can actually, I'll reel this back in a minute, you can look at the U.S.'s performance in the Olympic Games and Olympic weightlifting, and you can see that it all went to hell for a long period of time, and we're only now rebuilding because we're only now starting to get enough people young enough who learn how to manipulate a barbell. Hmm. So... Well, also those, what do you call them? Those small gyms, local LCGs, LCGs, local community gyms. So I go one called Squatch over here, which is yeah. very, like, I don't even think it's licensed as a gym. It's just a warehouse. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I don't, supposedly it's I don't, probably appropriately licensed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, but like a lot of them are just like, it's like a shed, like a big mm-hmm. shed with stuff in it. <laughs> yeah. And you're allowed to go because you're a member or whatever. Mm-hmm. Actually, you could probably just walk in if you really wanted to, but, but the, the, the point is, they don't have any of this, this machine stuff. It's like, like I, I know like I go to Gold's and there's just like a ton of different like little, like you specifically do this. One, I feel like I always get hurt on those. And I, th- I think that's the thing. I, I personally feel like I get more hurt on those than just lifting a regular barbell. But a lot of these newer gyms, like I feel like they've got like hammers and tires and stuff like that. They've got all those like random equipment where it's just like more about just moving the body rather than trying to strengthen this one very specific chain of muscles. So. I, I don't know. It sounds like barbells are coming back and then there's like deadlifts and stuff. I think CrossFit really kind of put everything on the map. Was that the second renaissance? Did it start with that? Yeah. So there's a gentleman here in Texas. He's a little bit controversial. His name's Mark Ripito. Have you ever heard of Mark Ripito? I don't think so. All right, no worries. I've never met. Look at me. Come on. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've never met the man and he's not the biggest fan of CrossFit. But one of the things that he says is he says, CrossFit put more hands on barbells than anything else since the invention of the barbell. Mm. And although he has some, he dislikes the methodology and a a few things about it, he thinks that that is a massive, massive net positive of putting more hands on more barbells and encouraging more people to learn physical culture. Now, one of the things that you mentioned about, you know, getting hurt more often on machines, I'm speaking from a slight point of ignorance here because I don't have the science necessarily on that up here to back this up. Mm. But when you use a barbell to work out in some way, you are not only working the specific muscles that the barbell is working, but you're working all of these stabilizer muscles in your body Mm. because the body is a system. And so when you are working out on a machine, like sitting down, the machine is holding your back in the appropriate position. It's forcing your arms in the appropriate position, and then it's isolating the workout only on the muscle that you want to isolate. By the way, there are some situations in which this is a good thing. Uh, some bodybuilders need it for you know reaching high levels of their sport. People who are injured and can't work some other parts of the body. But when you when a normal healthy person is isolating away, then they're robbing themselves of a variety of other benefits that that weightlifting exercise could have. Now, the other thing is, and there's a, I'm going to butcher this, but there's a quote, I think it's from Aristotle, and it says something like, um, no man deserves to be a uh, ignorant of physical culture or something like that. When you start learning to use a barbell or even dumbbells to do various types of training, you're learning about your own body. 
And there's something called, uh, oh shoot, I'm forgetting the scientific name for it, but it's basically your interior understanding of how to move your body through space. Mm -hmm. And when you lift weights, you're getting more feedback on how your body moves through space. And the, the height of learning that stuff is actually not weight related, it's probably gymnastics. Because if you look at a high level gymnast, they know, you know, to within, you know, fractions of a centimeter where their body or divers, that's another great one, mm -hmm. where their body exists in space. Mm -hmm. And with the most recent Olympics, you know, you talked, uh, there's a lot of talk about Simone Biles and the twisties. And uh, so that's one of the things that she was saying that she lost is that she had an exquisite idea of how her body moved through space. For example, when she's in a vault and then she, she had some issue, possibly mental or otherwise, I don't know mm -hmm. that she lost that. And so she's like, I can't compete. So I'm not anywhere near a Simone Biles level, of course, but by dedicating the last 15 years of my life to training with a barbell, I have a really good understanding of how my body moves through space and how to manipulate my body to accomplish various goals, which are mostly athletic in nature. I also think like if you just lift random heavy crap like this thing, you get a lot. So I remember like whenever I lift heavy dumbbells, if, if I do the isolation machine, you're done when you do, you're done. Yeah. But then I have to go put those 65 pound weights each back on the rack. And I remember thinking like, this is an extra workout. Yeah. Like I have to get up and use my whatever thigh muscles and then I have to like walk over there. So my back and, and mm -hmm. core is all taut. I'm assuming that that probably helps. And also that probably models like picking up a toddler or like, or I don't know, it's a heavy ass toddler, but like, but like picking up kids and throwing them around, it probably more models that kind of activity. So I see like the, the free weights coming back into vote. Also, it just looks cooler. Yeah. Also, you can have more, you can do more exercises in a home gym than having this giant like gold gym full of uh, random yeah. uh, exercises. So I, I, to speak to that, I think that the minimum viable garage gym is one kettlebell. Minimum viable garage gym is one kettlebell and a pull-up bar. And if you want to go slightly extravagant on that minimum viable garage gym, get two kettlebells and a pull-up bar. You can build an amazing body and amazing strength and fitness with one to two kettlebells and a pull-up bar. Now, if you wanted to expand, there's only a few items that are just critical. Pull-up bar, squat rack, barbell, plates, preferably bumper plates, and then you know maybe a bench, and then maybe a kettlebell and some dumbbells or something like that. Mm. But one of the things, that's actually part of the <laughs> reason that I'm not in love with these man cave garage gyms is because I have friends who are literal Olympians who have what you would consider a super Spartan, like crappy garage gym. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, well, I went to the Olympics with this like setup that wouldn't rate anything on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And so then when I see the like man caves on Instagram, I'm just like, please use it. If you use it, I love you. If you don't use it, ugh. <laughs> That's awesome. So, okay, so let's move into physical business logistics. So in the yeah. online world, transporting stuff costs zero dollars essentially. <laughs> in the offline, offline world, in the real world, moving crap around costs a lot, especially dense iron. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably like the worst thing to show. Like, unless you're shipping uranium, there's probably like nothing worse than like iron ore to ship around. How do you ship all this heavy ass stuff? Like, like okay, if I order $2,000 worth of equipment, does it come in like a UPS box? Like, what does it come in? Yeah. So 
one of the things when you ask this, I remember everything that sucks about my business is why I have a business. And so shipping weights sucks. It's just hard. Oh, that's your moat. What's that? Compared to other people, yeah, that's yeah, your moat. It's, it's absolutely Some moat. nerd like me will be like, I don't want to deal with this stuff. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah, d- totally. So the way that we do that is moving boxes 101 is touch the boxes as infrequently as possible. Because whenever you touch a box, there's basically cost involved. Either you know a human cost or a machine cost or possible damage or blah, 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 whatever. So rule number one, touch it as infrequently as possible. Rule number two is ship as efficiently as possible. Now, in our case, sometimes that means shipping on LTL or like a freight line to an end user like you. LTL? Uh, LTL, less than truckload. Sorry, acronym. Um, But in practice, most consumers are not used to receiving truckload shipments. Mm. And truckload shipments are way different than UPS. So UPS, FedEx, the Postal Service, used to be DHL as well. Uh, They all have or had networks that covered all of the U.S., which not only included, you know, the hubs to go from hub to hub, but also last mile, which last mile is the biggest problem in shipping anything. So freight companies are not like that. There are a patchwork of freight companies all over the place and they interline or or put freight to each other. Basically, it's a nightmare for the customer. So anything that we possibly can, we ship through UPS as our preferred provider. And so does UPS damage things? Absolutely. But it's way easier for you as an end user than for anybody else, sorry, than a freight line would be. And we basically just go toe to toe with UPS in terms of negotiating the rates. Wait, so you're saying if I order like 10 45 pound weights and three barbells or whatever, it just shows up in a UPS box? That's correct. Multiple boxes, <laughs> to be fair, but yes. So delivery drivers are always like, God damn it. Like, they probably hate we, you. Uh, we, we say we've got the most jacked UPS drivers in the business. Oh, do they have to sign like a special driver? Because like, there must be some sort of like they, strength requirement or they something? They don't have to send out a special driver. I will say, though, that there have been times where we've had drivers who hated us, and then we would had have had times where we have drivers who think that we're cool and love us. And it really is a lot easier when the driver just personally is into what we're doing and is, you know, a, a bigger type dude. So. Can you can you send like a thousand pounds in a UPS? Is, is it a thing? S- sort of. So UPS's single box limit is 150 pounds. So you can't send any single box over 150 pounds. And you start getting into these tiers of higher charge once your box crests 50 pounds. I, I think... I'm trying to remember, I don't recall exactly off the top of my head what those different tiers are, but UPS is trying to encourage you to ship relatively as lightweight boxes as possible, or at least under 50 pounds. And so if you ordered 10 45 pound plates, chances are you would get, or like, uh, sorry, if you ordered five pairs or 10 singles, you would potentially get 10 different boxes from us delivered by UPS. Mm -hmm. And he he just bring them up to your door one at a time. Dang. Okay. Yeah. Because shipping is always a nightmare and then shipping quick is a nightmare and then shipping heavy stuff. Oh my God. I can't even imagine. Um, where do you store all this crap? Like I imagine you have like a 
a ton of like literally tons of weights yeah. somewhere. So right now our warehouse is in Austin, Texas. We're always constantly seeing like, hey, is that a good place to be? I mean, the major benefit of being in Austin, Texas is that I am here in Austin, Texas. You're in the middle of the country. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's yeah. it's not that bad. It does take about a day to get out of Texas if we're shipping anywhere north. So if anything needs to go basically north of Texas, it takes about a day to get It's always on truck, right? Never plane. Oh, yeah. I mean, very infrequently do we ship on a plane. Very, very, very infrequently. Every now and again. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's almost always on a truck. But yeah, so we've got a warehouse here in Austin, Texas. And then we do leverage a little bit of 3PL or basically third-party logistics or other people's warehouses. How big are these warehouses? My warehouse here in Austin, Texas is about 22,000 square feet. But then again, like I said, we were leveraging uh, third-party warehouses as well. Nice. So, and you're buying a bigger warehouse. Man, I'm trying like hell. It is So Austin is a boom town right now. And one of the things that Austin's under-resourced for is what's called light industrial, which is the type of warehouse that I need. Heavy industrial would be like the Tesla plant that they're putting in because it's got heavy power and all that stuff. Light industrial is like a warehouse that would supply the Tesla plant or store barbells. Mm -hmm. And so Austin is very, very under-resourced in light industrial. So I've tried to buy five warehouses in the past few months and been shot down on all of them. Dang. Yeah, I know there's a, there's a ton of uh, light industrial moving here to service like Tesla and all mm -hmm. these big factories that are moving here. Um, we'll probably put some, if we have some warehouse pictures or something, I'm just curious, like, because <laughs> I, I was in the e-commerce, that's how I started, mm -hmm. like in 2000, uh, 1999 or 2001, um, I was in the e-commerce space. And so warehousing was always interesting because it was mm -hmm. out of California, San Carlos, California. And we had a third party who sent out all our stuff, but I would go and visit the warehouse. Right. And there's something cool about just like, like oh, it's like $5 million worth of stuff here. It's, it's like kind of neat. So um, something to mention about that is I did get very involved. So prior to Fringe Sport, I was uh, an employee at a company called Living Direct where we sold small appliances online. And I did get very involved in the ops side of that business at various different times. And I've always found it to be really interesting, the actual physical movement of stuff. I do think that the sales and marketing side is quite a bit more lucrative than the ops management side, mm -hmm. but ops management is interesting to me. Well, okay. So on that front with the physical location, okay. Physical goods suck because sorry. One reason they suck is you have to spend money to make them before you sell them. Usually. Yeah. So you have to, let's say I buy a hundred dollar barbell. You had to put up at least 50 bucks or something a while ago to make that money. Exactly. You, yeah. So, so you have to put up money to make money. Yeah. Whereas in the digital world, it's kind of like you don't really have to put up much money at all. Maybe some yep. hosting or something. Um, is does that suck? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it totally sucks. And for the first, it, that is like the devil of an e-commerce business. There, especially a small e-commerce business. I mean, I imagine if you're Casper or if you're some other business that's funded, then it's not really a big deal because you do a raise and then you know you can probably get a line based on you know the investors that have invested in you or something like that. But for a small e-commerce business, it's really difficult. So I've got two two stories about that. Story number one is until I grew to a pretty decent size, I was banking at Chase mm -hmm. and they did not know what to do with me. I mean, God bless our rep at Chase, but she basically dealt with me and then like a bunch of plumbers. And so <laughs> when I first went to Chase for a line, because I had all my business assets there, she was like, oh yeah, we can do a line, no problem, you know, $15,000. And I'm like, my Amex card has a $100,000, <laughs> you know, soft limit or whatever on it, like 15K isn't gonna cut it. I'm looking more for like $500,000. 
and you know her head about flew off like five hundred thousand dollars you know what kind of plumber are you <laughs> so, so so there was that however the other thing and i love telling this story is a short one because there's a lot of antipathy sometimes to dealing with china in various different spaces so when i resigned from living direct where i was an employee previously and founded fringe one of my friends that i had dealt with over in china for living direct on the appliance side he came to me i didn't come to him he came to me and he said peter it has been so enjoyable for me to work with you for these past five years i know you're starting your own business and i know cash flow is difficult when you start your own business so i'm going to give you five hundred thousand dollars in inventory financing just pay me back please and i said oh wow that's amazing his name is frank i said that is amazing and we shook hands on it i never once signed a piece of paper or anything and he floated me for the first several years of my business five hundred thousand dollars in inventory financing hmm. and part of the reason i like saying this i mean is that an unfair advantage sure it's an unfair advantage but I hear about a lot of like, like China, China, or kind of stuff like that, you know, here in America. And I'm like, I've lived all over the world and I've met good people all over the world. There's some assholes in the U S there's some assholes in China, but fundamentally we all want better things for our kids, you know, down the road. And that was, you know, just one example of just like a deep friendship and something that's not happened to me anywhere else. That's awesome. I mean, because getting that upfront money to sell stuff is difficult. Yeah. It's hard. I, I used to float my entire, I ran a rave company, never been to a rave in my life, but like, um, I, I didn't know you'd the, never been to a rave. You write about house of rave so often. That's funny. I kind of thought yeah, that I went to burning man once in 2014. Okay. Okay. That counts. That's like, I guess that's a rave, but, but house really, of rave was way before that. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, there was a, actually that was like my Christmas. <laughs> I, I remember seeing every August and September, I'd be like, what are all these giant orders for? And I'd be like, burning man. What is that? And then they sued me twice. Actually, <laughs> that's a different story. But, um, so, so spending money up front, uh, kind of sucks, but it's also your moat. Yeah. It means like less people are going to get in on that. Also you sell heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. So I imagine there's probably like fewer people that sell barbells and stuff than normal. Now, let me ask you this. So you have a physical location people can actually buy from, right? Yep. Okay. If I go there and buy a barbell, is it significantly cheaper? Cause I don't have to pay for shipping. We do a 10% discount for people who walk in. I will say that the experience is probably as good as we try to make our experience on our Shopify site. It's probably better when you walk in because every salesperson that I have is like steeped in this stuff. Oh, so this is an actual store. It's not high street retail, but yes, it's an actual store. You can walk in. Oh, we also, we had to shut it down due to COVID. I'm looking when I can reopen it, but pre COVID we ran the only free gym in the United States. And so pre COVID hmm. we had hundreds of people a week coming by fringe to work out and some portion of those, you know, bought something and that's how we supported the, the free gym. But yes, we have a non-traditional non-high street. Yeah, I got I got to come check this out. All right, cool. So the last questions I want to ask you are the lightning round questions. Let's rock. So got lightning round questions here and I'm going to time you so they don't go over a minute. Uh, cause you're a big rambler. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to figure out what app you use to start up the, what, what do you, what do you clock. use? Clock. Oh shit. Where's my clock? I don't think I have a clock on here. I'm going to have to edit out this part, by the way. What the is the clock? We're going to edit this out. I'm going to take a drink. Yeah, go for it. 
Am I stupid? Oh, I think I don't think my clock's on there. Weird. Okay, so I got it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, hold on. put a marker there. <laughs> so um, okay. So lightning round with Peter Keller. Let's go. So, what is the most popular trend in gym equipment right now? What are people buying? Most popular trend is definitely statement pieces for the garage gym. So I talked before about the man cave thing. People want a big statement piece. So one of them could be like a big, amazing squat rack. Another one could be like some flashy plates. So we do some plates that look like pizza or <laughs> plates, and those are just amazingly popular. That's awesome. All right. Uh, next one. How big of a warehouse do you need to sell millions of dollars worth of gym equipment? When we first crested a million dollars, I had a 7,500 square foot warehouse. Oh. I think that if I had to restart now, I would probably try to do something like monkey feet. I don't know if you've seen this product all over Instagram and mm. Joe Rogan's been talking about it. I'm assuming that they go to third party logistics or they're using someone else's warehouse. So if I had to restart right now, I would probably try to make a compact high margin product and then just try to blow it through the roof. Interesting. All right. And then, um, how do you ship like 2000 pounds of equipment? You just like stick it on a truck. Like what do you do? So 2000 pounds is going to be on a truck, but ideally what we would do is we would chunk that down into smaller boxes and put it through UPS. Hmm. And then last question. So, um, I can only do three exercises ever. What would they be? Three exercises ever would be a body weight squat, a body weight push up, and then a pull up. I think that if you could only do three exercises, squat, push up, and pull up would take you pretty far. Nice. Cool. Well, uh, Peter Keller, thanks for uh, being here. Or where can people find you and all your stuff? Yeah. So just www.fringesport, or as we talked about before, just Google type it. Yeah. Google Fringe Sport. And yeah. <laughs> that's the best way to find us. And you're not you're not like super big on the uh, the socials except I mean Instagram I think you have like a pretty good following going on yeah Instagram is all is all right we are trying to build up the YouTube but yeah we're not huge on socials join our email newsletter like I think it's fun oh yeah so you can model your email exactly newsletter. you exactly. can be like hey was he telling the truth or not nice well Peter Keller thanks so much for being here visit fringesport.com check it out if you want to get guns actually I should not be the uh, the spokesperson for this thanks so much oh yeah, here you go the Arnold thing so, oh, so what's the Arnold thing from Predator. Let's do, let's do that again. I need to get okay. a good, good, good clap. <laughs> nice. Thanks, man. Hey, it's Neville here. And I'd love to explain four reasons getting on our email list can benefit your life. Number one, every Friday we send out the stupid email, which is a swipe, thought, uplifting, picture, interesting, and drawing. People regularly say this is their most looked forward to email they get all week. Number two, we spend a lot of time and money filming great interviews about content marketing, copywriting, communications, growing a business, and just figuring out more about how the world works. For example, we've interviewed the CEOs of AppSumo, Udemy, The Hustle, and many more. There's so many golden nugget lessons we learn from each of them, and I hope you get in on this too. Number three, a single idea can possibly change the trajectory of your life. Just one thing you learn or pick up from these emails can potentially have a gigantic impact on you. And number four, we cover topics on how to grow a small business from just a side project to becoming something that's a full-time career. And bonus number five, you can unsubscribe at any time. One click, poof, 
I am out of your life forever. Losing a subscriber is painful, so I've tried to make sure my email list is full of useful information to business owners and people trying to improve their copy and communication skills. So go to copywritingcourse.com and enter your email. We'll handle the rest. Thank you.